0: Hello, hello, how are you guys doing today? Having a good reInvent? Yes. Right on, yeah, we had all the announcements this morning, so a bunch of networking things that uh, he just sort of was like, yeah, yeah, it's networking stuff, and went on to the other things, so yeah, Transit Gateway uh, has some changes in VPN, that kind of thing, so uh, welcome everyone. This is the Transit Gateway session for reference architectures. Uh, I'm Nick, I do network stuff for the most part. And uh, so today, uh, what we're really going to be focusing on is uh, Transit Gateway, a little bit about how it works, and then really sort of digging into the, the reference architecture. So you know, uh, talking about the costs, the architecture, the scalability, and, and really just walking through at least how I have conversations with customers that are trying to build out their, you know, their enterprise network and their security and their segmentation, and how to think about all the different options that AWS provides to you, and making it a little bit simpler by making recommendations, and then letting you know how to, to sort of alter those that might meet your individual requirements. Cool. So uh, let's start off with you know, the concept of having a lot of virtual private clouds or, or VPCs. So uh, you know, the VPC, when we talk about it, we say it's your data center in the cloud. You know, it's very segmented. It's, it's yours. Nothing goes in or out unless you allow it to. Uh, but is it really a data center? Because I work with customers that have 100, 200, 300, 500, 1,000 VPCs. I think I've worked with one customer that had 20 data centers once. That was the most. So, you know, the fact that you can create these VPCs through an automation script, that means there's not really a data center. If you're creating data centers through automation, then, you know, we we'll probably have a job for you here at AWS. <laughs> you know, we need, we need to build more data centers. Um, so there's that concept of you might have a lot more of these things than a normal VPC. Uh, also, the people that the security of a VPC in account is a little bit different. You know, unless you have a very well-organized identity structure in your data center, you probably don't have one set of credentials that get you into everything in your data center. Your root account does that, and so you have to be very careful with that root account, and you have one of those per account. Uh, the other option is the, the thing to think about between, like, data centers networking and, and the cloud networking is the people that are operating and owning those networks. Uh, you know, on-premises, you have network teams and security teams that manage those networks. Uh, in the cloud, it might be the marketing team that has their own VPC—they know nothing about networking. Potentially, or developers who are still terrified of networking because it's, you know, different. Um, and so you have people that are like owning, operating, running networks that aren't necessarily, you know, network engineers. How many people identify themselves as a networking person here? Okay, cool deal. So quite a bit of the, those types. In the, in the, how about how non-like? How many of you guys are developers and maybe DevOps that kind of thing? Yeah. So a good mix of that too, right? So that's that shows you the the difference of, of people trying to do networks in AWS. Uh, so we take a look at some of the challenges, right? So uh, a lot of customers will start off with like a dev and a prod. Pretty pretty simple, right? Connect that into VPN or direct connect on-premises. If this is your architecture, you could probably leave. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, when I say many VPCs, I mean more than two. Um, so, you know, if you, if you go into this, this, you know, you start getting more people, more projects. Uh, you start realizing you probably want some share, some services, get some peering in there. Uh, some other people create some more VPCs up, and so, you know, maybe six months, a year in your cloud journey, you're into maybe six VPCs. Uh, and then someone goes, all right, well, you know, we also wanna make sure you're doing so good, we don't do disaster recovery, so we need to, to duplicate all that. We also have a WAN network that we, we we need to use. We need to connect our VPCs between regions. Uh, someone let's down up a landing zone, so now we just, we have 100 new VPCs that we're not sure what to do with. Uh, and then over here, the developers, uh, They put an API in their dev VPC, so uh, the dev VPC is now also prod. (laughs) So how do we deal with that? Uh, So we need a new dev VPC for them. Uh, And then apparently we just spun up some sort of uh, credit card application, so we gotta do like some firewall stuff, some proxies, and I don't know how to do that. And at some point, the network person is like, what are you guys doing? I don't know how to, this is not what I'm used to. So that's sort of what we're gonna do today, is how do you sort of wrangle these types of challenges, Um, because the the concept is you take a lot of those lines away, you replace them with transit gateway, uh, and you start thinking about this in a better way. So our network person also speaks a little bit of Spanish, and he says, me gusta, which for those of you, I'll do some translation here, Uh, that means I like this cloudy goodness. So uh, let's get into it. So transit gateway, Oh, I should also warn you this, I have 99 slides and over 900 animations, so this is more, Clippy actually came to me and said, you should probably turn, turn this into Microsoft Movie Maker. So I got a badge from Clippy. Uh, but this thing's gonna keep moving, so hopefully everyone ate lunch and is still awake. Uh, we're gonna move pretty fast. So Transit Gateway, it's your router in the cloud. It's a regional concept. It centralizes your direct connect and your VPN. Uh, it scales to 5,000 attachments and VPCs, so a scalable router. Uh, You can do flexible traffic segmentation. So you can use the route tables to put things in a different uh, route tables and make sure things don't talk to each other. Uh, It also allows you to do uh, network interfaces. So when you attach a VPC, it puts a network interface in that VPC. And if you're familiar, if you've been around for AWS for a while, we talked about transitive routing for a while, which is a terrible term, by the way. But transitive routing meant that either the source or the destination for a packet had to be on a network interface in that VPC. And now that we've, we're using network interfaces, it allows us to do a lot more routing tricks, which we'll get into. So uh, one of the first things I have conversations about with customers when I talk about transit gateways, I go, okay, well, do I need two? Or what happens when this thing breaks? Uh, did you just put a router in the cloud? Because routers break all the time, and I don't like that. So Hyperplane is the way that we, we address this. So Hyperplane is a distributed state management system that we've deployed on EC2 in each one of our regions. It's the platform that runs Network Load Balancer, NAT Gateway, EFS Mount Points, and Transit Gateway. So it's seen a lot of packets. So it's something that's a reliable platform for us. Uh, The way it works is whenever you put an attachment in an availability zone, you get shards of bandwidth in that availability zone across those EC2 instances. And depending upon how much bandwidth we allocate to this concept is how much bandwidth you get. So for Transit Gateway, you get 50 gigabits of bandwidth which is also why we charge you per attachment because we're you know, allocating bandwidth for you. And as you add more attachments, you get more bandwidth across more instances. If someone else or other tenants allocate more interfaces, then they also get this. And it's a technique we use called shuffle sharding. So this means that any one of these instances fails or if any one of our customers tries to blow up their entire transit gateway, it's not gonna impact other folks because we've distributed that load across this fleet. And it also means that even though we have this availability zone specific sort of data processing architecture, uh, we still expose the transit gateway at the regional level. So we abstract you away from the availability zone specific concepts that we have uh, to make sure you see one regional router. So that's a nice feature of that hyperplane concept. So your router's not gonna break, that's what you need to know. Uh, So let's talk about some configuration examples. So I see it in sort of two use cases, sort of like the flat, I'm the network person, and I just want everything to talk to everything, and if you can't reach something, it's not my fault. Uh, and the other one is, uh, yeah, I, don't, I have some responsibility of the security, I don't want things to be able to talk to each other, so how do I make sure things are isolated? So if we take a look at this, we have our Transit Gateway, we have a default routing table, so this is the default functionality of Transit Gateway, and we have a VPC. That VPC, when it attaches, the route's automatically in that route table, so 10.1 in this example. Uh, Because the the VPC route table, or the the transit gateway route table supports 5,000 routes, but the VPC route table only supports 1,000, 5,000 is bigger than 1,000, that means we can't just dump all the routes into the VPC route table automatically. So you have to statically define which routes and which which propagation you wanna go to the the transit gateway. So in this case, we just said 10 slash eight is a static route to the transit gateway. So per VPC, you'll need to configure that. We'll talk about an orchestration solution that that solves that later. So as you add more VPCs, more routes show up. And then that means that now, because they all have routes to each other, they can all talk to each other. So that's good, and this is the default behavior. Uh, From a wording perspective, I use route domains and route tables interchangeably. Sometimes it's just easier to say route domains because VPCs and transit gateways both have route tables. It can be a little confusing. So if we take a look at isolated, in this case we have the same VPCs. But in this case, we only have one route. So we, we don't want them to talk to each other, only to VPN. So we'll create another route table for VPN. We'll attach VPN to that route table. And then we will propagate the VPN routes to the VPC route table. And so you have a zero, zero route there. And then in the route table for the VPN, you have the VPC routes propagated there. And so. Uh, you can notice here that even though we have four VPCs, they're attached to the same route table. But that route table policy says the only thing you're allowed to do is go to VPN. So that means these VPCs can't talk to each other, but they can get on-premises. So one route table, one policy, allows us to do that for many, many VPCs. And these slides all get posted as SlideShare and all that sort of stuff, and it's, it's, it's be on YouTube in a day, too, so don't worry about memorizing all my slides. I wouldn't recommend it. Um, So if we take a look at how propagations work, it looks like this. So when you attach a VPC to a route table, that basically defines where it's allowed to go. So in this case, allowed to go to zero, zero. You propagate your routes to people that should be able to reach you. So in this case, the VPCs wanna be reached by VPN, so we propagate the routes to that route table. And we wanna make sure that those two things match, that the routes that we have are then also propagated, so that way there's two-way communication. All right, so let's get into the reference architecture. So this is, this is sort of the recommendation that we're gonna build out here uh, through the rest of the presentation. So we have basically four main VPCs. This is where we put our sort of accounts with workloads in them, dev, test, prod, shared services. And we'll talk about how shared VPC works, which enables you to have multiple accounts in the same VPC. You also have some other accounts hanging out there that don't have workloads in it. You know, landing zones and administrative accounts, billing, uh, we're gonna connect all of those to a single transit gateway and then use the route tables to do segmentation. And then we're gonna connect all of our VPN and Direct Connect to that transit gateway. And then we're gonna start talking about some optional network services. So how would we centralize outbound connectivity? How would we centralize inbound connectivity? How do we do uh, inline inspection between VPCs for like intrusion pre- prevention systems? Those kinds of things. All right, cool deal. So, The first thing I usually talk about customers with is the account strategy. So, you know, how many VPCs do you have? How many do you want? How are you creating new VPCs? Where's that line drawn? And so, for a lot of customers, this comes down to sort of two core decisions. So it's, do you want large VPCs? So you have less infrastructure, and you put all your instances in there, like very large, you know, tens of thousands of instances with, you know, hundreds of different development groups in a single VPC. Uh, You need to be good at IEM, you need to be good at resource tagging, uh, you need to, to figure out how to bill that and use the tagging to, to do that. But we've had a lot of customers that have done that because that's just the model they worked best in. Uh, I think particularly when I worked with a lot of sort of more traditional enterprises where they're used to like giving VLANs out to business groups. You know, they're used to having like a set of infrastructure per tenant. Like this is your VLAN and your you can do whatever you want inside that VLAN. But once you leave the VLAN, you know, boundary, we have to do something. And that's more about that's more like creating a VPC for them. And so they feel more comfortable with you know, VPC's segmentation boundary and every group and every tenant gets their own VPC. At scale, you run into architectural problems with having hundreds of VPCs because we have limits on our side. Uh, but it does make the billing and the sort of blast radius simpler to think about. So one of the things now we can do is we can combine these, these concepts with VPC sharing. So VPC sharing allows you to have an infrastructure account where you have full control over the VPC. You set up the VPC, internet gateway, route tables, the policies, whether or not you want to connect on-premises or not, all of the infrastructure stuff, NAT gateways, that kind of thing. And then you can take those subnets and turn those into resource shares. So you can say that the public and the private subnets become the yellow share, and just the private subnets become the blue share, and we're going to share you know, each of those out to different sets of accounts. Those accounts then only see the subnets. They don't see the, the networking gobbledygook, They don't know about internet gateways. They just say, hey, I want to deploy instances. This is where I deploy my instances. This is good if you're a network person because you may not want the developers mucking around with network stuff. And if you're a developer that doesn't like networking, it's good because you don't have to go mess with network stuff. So if you take a look at what it looks like from the user, uh, they will only see their instances and the subnets that have been shared with them. If you go and look at the other tenant, they would only see their instances. So Blue would only see the private subnets in their instances, so they don't really know who else is they're sharing a swimming pool with. And they still have full control over their data, their security groups, all those types of things. So uh, why not use this? I mean, it's good because you get better allocation of your resources. It's good because you get better separation of duties between your teams. Uh, you can actually use it for cost avoidance because now if you're within the same availability zone, there's no peering charges or things like that. Uh, but some people still find separate VPCs to be simpler. Um, there's less ifs, there's less uh, worries about blast radius, there's less worries about uh, maybe one of the, the tenants decides to spin up some crazy Kubernetes cluster that has 1,000 IP addresses. So now you have to do you know allocation of those addresses. Um, or if one of the tenants decides to do something dumb, like put an unpatched WordPress server in their VPC, and someone else in a different account opened up an overly permissive security group rule, so now that tenant could now technically talk to another one if you didn't do other things. So there's some things to think about there. So, but if you have lots of semi-trusted accounts you want to put in the same, same infrastructure, it's a good idea. But if you don't have someone to like manage all this, if no one actually wants to take ownership of creating the VPCs, you may want to go distributed. Uh, there are a few caveats. So you can't run uh, Amazon FSx or the classic HSM endpoints, which you shouldn't really do anyways. You should just use the new stuff. It's better. Um, And then as of uh, last week, we can now do network load balancer. So the consumers can put network load balancers in their VPCs. Uh, The VPC, the the, the shared VPC still has the same limits as normal VPCs, so you want to think about the limits as well. Um, And you can't eject people in that VPC. So if someone does something in that VPC you don't like, it's their subnet. They can do that. And so you have to think about organizationally if that makes sense for you. But otherwise, it allows you to condense a lot of your infrastructure in one place, saves IP addresses, can save on peering, those kinds of things. So if if you're doing a lot of peering today, maybe you should take a look at VPC sharing instead because you still get that account-level granularity without all of the separate infrastructure. Uh, There's another session uh, tomorrow and on Thursday. So you can do a search for shared VPC. On that, it's in your uh, in your app. So let's talk about segmentation. So segmentation is interesting because uh, it's one of those things that you know customers would like for us to be a lot more prescriptive about. But when I talk to customers, these conversations are just wildly different. Some customers have two VPCs where the people in those VPCs like literally hate each other, like they would never ever want to be in the same VPC. Uh, some customers have you know two organizations that they put them in separate VPCs because the their org structure was different. Like the web app and databases are in different VPCs because they wanted to bill it differently. Like that doesn't really make sense. Um, So you have to think a little bit about why you're creating the segmentation boundaries. Uh, You also have to think about the relationship with the security and networking team. So do you have a central networking team to manage these things? Or are those embedded in each one of the service teams potentially? Uh, And also in governance and compliance. Uh, If your compliance officer just doesn't like the idea of shared VPCs, like that might be a deal-breaker. So that's something you have to think about uh, from, from your own perspective. So we have these accounts. How can we secure them? So there's a couple options. The baseline option is IAM security groups. We've had these forever, and our customers have been really successful using these, and they still exist, and we highly would encourage you to use them. So a reminder that no matter what you do, by default, instances can't talk to anything until you whitelist things. So... Don't create overly permissive security groups if you're worried about security. That's step one. Um, from there, you can do other things. So within the VPC, you've got, you have route tables. This, this controls if it's public or private, or if it has access to transit gateway or not, uh, or even which transit gateway it might talk to, those kinds of things. Uh, at the route table, you also have, at the VPC level, you also have network ACLs. So the network access lists allow you to do what I consider like broad stroke things. This subnet should never use this port or this subnet should never talk to these groups of subnets. So you can actually use it to do, like, tenant isolation within a VPC, or if you want to block a certain IP address report. Uh, and then you've got the concepts of just using separate VPCs, like we said. And now with Transit Gateway, we can do hundreds and thousands of VPCs, so if you want to have lots of VPCs, it's, it's much less of an issue than it was even six months ago or a year ago. And so one of the things I see with customers is that there's this sort of tenant and infrastructure shared security line. So if you're like the networking and security organization, you can't always go in, force people to use the correct security groups. And so sometimes you have to take on some of that responsibility at the transit gateway layer or at the firewall layer, potentially. So then beyond that, you can do groups of policy at the transit gateway. So the transit gateway route tables allow you to to set up multi-VPC security policies and segmentation. And from there, you can also add additional services. So if you want to do egress filtering, or uh, you know, firewall inspection, intrusion detection, those kinds of things, you can do that too. Uh, plus there's also things like guard duty, which allow you to do uh, cloud-based sort of IDS. So uh, let's do some examples. You guys still with me, awake, yeah? All right, I put these pineapples on here, uh, and these ducks, because one, apparently someone, I don't know who it was last year, they requested more ducks. So I put more ducks in. Um, and it make sure people are still awake. So uh, let's take a look at this. So this is one model that we already talked about, you know, just flat. Let everything talk to everything. Uh, it sounds like it might, be not, it might be overly permissive, but if you're using security groups, that might be the way that you're, you're locking things down. So this is the network team saying, I'm allowing connectivity everywhere. The way that you secure that, up to you. Definitely a legitimate model. Uh, if we want to create something a little bit more custom, how would we do that? Well, I like to think about these as connectivity matrices. So let's think about like, the, the types of things we have. In this case, we have VPN, VPCs, and shared services. And so we'll create a matrix here and fill out what we want them to do. We don't want VPCs to talk to VPCs. We do want VPN and shared service access from VPNs, or VPCs. And then VPN should only talk to VPCs. Shared services should only talk to VPCs. So if we figure this out, how many different policies do we have? is two, we have two different policies here, even though there's sort of three things. So this means when we go to configure this, we can think about the associations and propagations along this little table here. And so if we take a look at this in Transit Gateway, and we'll bring up a little cheat sheet, so we don't have to memorize boxes, uh, we'll create two route tables, we'll attach things to where they need to be, and so we're gonna then propagate the VPN and shared services into the VPC route table, because those are those, those two green check marks, and then the VPC routes go into the VPN route table. And so that's, you know, that's how you would take this concept of, I want this to talk to this, but not to this. You fill out that sort of matrix, turn it into route tables, and then that turns into association <coughs> propagation. So that works, that works pretty well. Uh, but someone might say, hey, uh, yeah, I can't manage the shared services from on-prem. I would like to do that, actually. Okay, well, let's go change our policy, see what that looks like. So from now, from VPN, we want to be able to access shared services, and so we'll just sort of make a more permissive policy for those route tables. We still have two policies, so we'll create the same two route tables and do association propagation. So here, we've got uh, those two route tables, and we're just gonna propagate different routes here. So we're gonna propagate the shared services route and the VPN route into the route table associated uh, with VPN and shared services. So now, this, now we can access shared services via VPN. Uh, but, you know, we can't go between VPCs. We can talk to shared services, and we can talk to VPN. So it's a pretty sane policy. You know, this, this, when I talk to customers, this is like 80% of the way, 90% of the way for most customers. Something like this. So, you know, my recommendations are uh, security groups and IAM. like, let's not forget about those. Just because we have these networking policies doesn't mean we should depend upon them. The, the closer you can do the security to the applications and the application owners, the faster you'll be able to move and more granular that policy will be. Uh, and that's sort of getting more closer to cloud native as opposed to your DMZ in the cloud. Uh, shared VPCs are great if you can use them. You can enforce some tenant, tenant boundary, makes the infrastructure a little bit easier. Uh, separate VPCs, you know, if you like simple, VPCs are simple. Uh, you take on some infrastructure challenges. Uh, and for transit gateway, you know, really try to think about grouping your sets of policies together. That way, you don't have a separate policy for every single VPC. You really don't want to do that. So they go, Nick. Yeah, but that doesn't always happen. You can't always do that. Well, yeah, okay. We'll see what happens. So this is our our friendly. Uh, I remember there are developers in the room, so I'll try to talk nicely about them. Um, so the developers, uh, they're innovating. And so they put an API that the production services want to use. So the old dev VPC is now the prod VPC, because they've done such a great job. Um, but from a security perspective, we're like, we, did, we, we just did our cheat sheet. You're not allowed to do that. You can't, the, the production can't access VPCs. We already said that. Why did you do that? So okay, how do we fix this problem now? Because production needs this VPC and it's important. Uh, well, a couple things. One thing you could do is uh, you go and have a conversation with them, and you say, don't do that. Or you could say, hey, let's move that. You have a service you want to share with people? Okay, let's put it in the shared services VPC. That's what we built that for. And so, you know, maybe they'll move it over there. Maybe they wrote it in CloudFormation or Terraform and they can just relaunch it somewhere else. That'd be nice. Not always. Uh, So that'd be good. Uh, What are the other things we could do? Well, we could put a network load balancer in front of the, the API, and then we could use PrivateLink. So we could put that... PrivateLink makes that API looks like it shows up in someone else's VPC, even if they have the same address space we do. It's a nice feature of PrivateLink. Um, so if you can use PrivateLink, that's great. <coughs> Some things you want to think about with PrivateLink is PrivateLink is, PrivateLink is on a per-app basis, so it's application by application. If you have lots of things and you need to talk to lots of things, you might want to look at Transit Gateway. They both scale to thousands, so scale's not really an issue for either one. <coughs> and the cost models are a little bit different. One involves the load balancing, the, other one has a, you know, per, the, the cost usually isn't a big deal on this. Uh, so you, you may want to think about, you know, can we use private link for this? And it, For me, it usually comes down to the load balancing component. Is it a pure client-to-server relationship? OK. So what are some other options? Well, what if it's not an API? What if it's a database? Not really good for load balancing and private link. Well, uh, we have this feature. It's been around for a long time. It's called VPC peering. So you could just peer those two VPCs together. Uh, You can peer, as long as this API or database doesn't need to be shared off to more than 125 things, we can do that with peering, without touching anything else. And at some point, someone's like, hey, uh, aren't we in a Transit Gateway session? I thought you were gonna tell me how to use Transit Gateway. Can't I just share this with Transit Gateway? Yeah, you can, so let's take a look at that. So uh, we have to create a new matrix here. So now we have two new types of things. We have the database VPC and people that wanna consume the database VPC. And so the database CPC only really should contact the people that want to consume it, and the consumers should only consume the database CPC. Otherwise, the, the same policies still apply. Uh, and we'll need to fill out the rest of this matrix to you know, disallow and allow the bidirectional communication. And so now we're at four route tables. But you know, before we had nine checkboxes, and now we have 25. So just by adding a single sort of new policy, we've you know, almost tripled the amount of configuration that we've got to do, and the amount of complexity that we're managing in this matrix. And so, if this happens a couple more times, this thing might be, you know, a hundred checkboxes. And so, you know, our network administrator comes in and says, you know, "No bueno," which I'll, I'll translate again. Um, it says, "Yeah, you know, that's not so scalable. That uh, that could cause problems." So, you can do this, but you got to be sort of careful with it. Uh, so, you know, options. Ask them to move it. Don't do that. Same thing I'd tell my four-year-olds, just don't do that. Um, it's about as effective. Um, and then you can use private link in, P- in VPC peering. Again, if you're doing a lot of VPC peering, a lot of these exceptions, take a look at shared VPCs, because like, maybe you should just bundle all these things in one, one VPC. Uh, in other words, you know, build groups of these things. Uh, and so now we're talking a lot about, about sort of managing these groups of things and the VPCs, so I'd like to talk a little bit about something we re- released uh, two weeks ago called Stano. So S-T-N-O. You can do a Google search for it if you like. Um, But it's a management and orchestration thing we built that you can can run a CloudFormation template in your own account to run this stuff. And it allows you to have a a management console. It will automate the attachments to your VPCs. It will automate the inserting routes into your VPCs so you don't have to manage static routes all over the place. Uh, And it also gives you a place to audit and control uh, workflows for uh, attaching new VPCs, as well as uh, controlling who can talk to who and that kind of thing. Uh, and there's no servers to manage, so you know it's all serverless, which is nice. So it's all Lambda. Uh, it has some defaults built in, <clears throat> so uh, it has these four route tables: so flat, isolated, hybrid, and infrastructure. So that's roughly you know, think about it like dev VPCs, you know, production VPCs, and then your hybrid infrastructure, and then maybe some shared infrastructure. This also aligns to control tower and landing zone. So over time, this, this will sort of build into the tool that we would use with control tower and landing zone for those cases where you have hundreds of accounts that you need to con- connect to automatically. And in this scenario, uh, just like the Transit VPC, so this is built by the same people that built Transit VPC, uh, for the spoke, if they want to join a Transit Gateway network, all they have to do is tag things. So you tag your subnets and tag your VPCs, and it, will, it all happens sort of automagically. So let's take a look at how that works. So up top, we have our sort of spoke VPC. They have put some tags on their, the subnets where they want Transit Gateway to come attach. You do need to attach to a subnet in every availability zone. That is important. The tag here is you just say attach to TGW. You don't need to put anything in the, in the value field. And then on the VPC, you will tag it with Uh, the propagate to and associate with. So that's going to define which route table it goes to and where it gets propagated to. So if you're the network administrator, you may have to tell your users which tags to use. From there, it goes through the CloudWatch events into EventBridge to a Lambda. It's going to write it to Dynamo so we know what happened. And then it's going to kick off a state machine and go see what the transit gateway looks like. Uh, From there, it'll make sure that, that all those things exist and everything's valid. And from there, it will go just automatically start configuring things using uh, cross-account roles. So it will go put the static route in that VPC, and it will do the attachments into that. And it's configured to work within your organization, so organizations, you can just say, anything with my organizations are allowed to do this. So that's nice. Uh, Well, what if you don't want all this auto-magic? There's some sensitive parts of your network, okay? Well, uh, we have a different workflow with, that requires approval. <clears throat> so, when this inbound tagging thing happens and the state machine goes to check trans Gateway, if there's a specific tag there and that tag says that approval required, yes, so the route table's tagged, then it kicks off the approval workflow. So, the approval workflow will then say, hey, I'm going to send an email to the network admin and they can log into the management console. The management console you know, it's gonna read Dynamo to find out what's going on. And if you approve it, then goes through the same workflow and creates the attachments and the, the route inside the VPC. So less manual work for administrators and centralizes that, allows the, the spokes to just tag things and get network access. So it works with resource access manager, makes this whole thing a little bit simpler to use. So a lot of customers have been waiting for that for a while. If you wanna try it out, uh, here's the link if you guys wanna take a picture for a second. Or you can just do a, a, you know, search for AWS Stano. Cool. And these will be on SlideShare, like I said, too, in case you're not handy with your phone. Uh, So now, okay, let's connect this to on-premises. How do we do that? Well, we actually have a lot of options. So we can connect uh, over VPN uh, or direct connect through a a virtual private gateway, you know. Uh, That only gives us 1.25 gigs per tunnel, so it's a little bit limited. Uh, We can connect in through direct connect, through the VGW or with Direct Connect Gateway. You know, that, that scales a lot, pretty good, you know, up to 500 VPCs, and I'll show you how to do that. Um, you can also create your own EC2-based VPN. So if you have a firewall or a router vendor you just really want to use, um, you can, and historically people use this for transit VPC to get around a lot of limitations that transit gateway solved. Um, usually the complexity here is more about the management more than anything else. It's pretty capable. There's a lot of options. Um, but it's just the management that becomes sort of challenging. Uh, and then obviously, sort of the uh, home field favorite is Transit Gateway. So the ones we're going to review here, because we're being a little selective about what we talk about, is Direct Connect and Transit Gateway, because they, they scale better. So uh, Direct Connect works like this. You know, we have a point of presence. We have, I don't know, I think like 50-ish, 75 of them around the world, something, something in that range. And uh, you get a router there, you get connectivity there, and you create a virtual interface to your VPCs. So basically you create like a VLAN, and that maps to a VPC. So you can do that 50 times on a one gig or 10 gig port on dedicated ports. Uh, because this is an architecture session, we should do this the right way, and that means you should go get a second connection to a different Direct Connect location and connect in from there. So uh, this actually makes you eligible for you know, three nines of SLA, as the bare minimum sort of HA architecture for us. So, you know, they get you to 50 VPCs, but I want more. Give me more. So what happens if, if the, accounts, the VPCs are in different accounts or even different regions? So if I have one physical port, I want to connect to lots of places. Well, uh, that's what Direct Connect Gateway is for. So Direct Connect Gateway allows you to connect to different regions and different accounts across the world. You can connect up to 10 different VPCs to a single Direct Connect Gateway. So it gets that scaling function. And that's one private virtual interface that does that. You can create up to 50 private virtual interfaces, so 50 times 10 is 500. So as of uh, mid this year sometime, we this, allow this multi-account, multi-region functionality. So one physical port essentially gets you about 500 VPCs uh, if you like clicking a lot or if you're good at automation. So another way to do this is with the transit virtual interface. And you get one of these uh, per physical port. And what ends up happening is you associate it with a direct connect gateway. You connect that to transit gateway. You can advertise up to 100 routes into AWS. And you can choose 20 static routes from your to advertise per transit gateway. And you can connect up to three transit gateways per physical port. That's one of the reasons in this architecture we've chosen here. I said there's one transit gateway for dev, test, prod, et cetera, Uh, because if you want to do this across the world, you know, you're sort of limited to choosing three transit gateways. But as of today, because we just announced transit gateway peering cross-region, what you could do is you could start peering your transit gateways out here and sort of using transitive routing to get there. So you could say, yeah, maybe this transit gateway on the right here is the one in Asia Pacific, and it would connect into Dublin and Frankfurt and France. And so you can actually start getting a little bit more flexible how you handle your transit gateways. Uh, You do incur some additional charges here, but uh, you do get more scalability across Direct Connect. So that's pretty cool. Because that's been, three transit gateways was pretty limiting for a lot of people, and so this is a big change for us. So there's some other options. So if you already have Direct Connect working and you don't have any problems with it, but maybe you want to add VPN as backup, you know, that's great, you can still continue using Direct Connect as is, just add VPN as backup. Uh, this would be if, you know, you wanna add encryption or, or, or VPN backup to that. Also, whenever you send traffic from on-premises into the transit gateway, there's that two cent e- ingress charge. And so, if you're sending lots of traffic, you may want to set up Direct, direct Connect communication to those VPCs that are heavier traffic to reduce, you know, data transfer charges. Uh, the other option is you can also use a public virtual interface. So you create a transit gateway, it's obviously in the AWS cloud. From Direct Connect, you set up a public virtual interface. That public virtual interface is going to advertise all of our routes to you, and including our VPN endpoints. So then you create VPN to the transit gateway, and that can ride over Direct Connect. So you just choose Direct Connect as the path for VPN. So that's good for a couple things. Uh, one is it's super scalable, because you can VPN all over the place, uh, but it also gives you encryption over Direct Connect. So you know, if you're regulated or care about the security and encryption of your, your circuits, this is the recommended pattern for encrypting your, your circuits. It also, if you want more than three transit gateways, it also does that. Cool, so uh, let's talk about VPN a little bit. So VPN is basically the same as it's always been. Um, The the main difference is now we we support equal cost multipath, So each VPN tunnel is still 1.25 gigabits per second. Uh, But if you want more bandwidth, add more tunnels. Uh, The only major caveat to think about is make sure your on-premises gear supports that. For example, routers are generally pretty good at it, but some firewalls have maximums of like three or four tunnels. Or they don't like traffic coming in and out of different tunnels because firewalls just don't like asymmetric routing very much. So uh, you may want to inspect your on-premises gear a little bit. And also new today is Accelerated VPN. So it's another option. So what this allows you to do is you can use Amazon's global network to connect to the closest place to your branches or whatever that wants to come in. So Amazon Global Accelerator basically puts any cast, so we put the same addresses around the world, you can connect in through VPN. So you create one VPN policy and give it out to all your branches, and then they will automatically find the closest part of our backbone, use that as the entry point into our network and then they can come in and, you know, connect to the transit gateways. So, uh, you know, it's better, better for latency, a little bit more reliable and you get to leverage, you know, this giant network that Amazon has uh, for your, you know, maybe SD-WAN sort of like connectivity. So, let's talk about network services a little bit. Uh, so, we've built this architecture out. We have some accounts. We have connecting to on-premises uh, but, you know, Maybe someone wants to do outbound filtering for PCI compliance, or uh, someone wants to bring in a centralized ingress load balancer because they want more advanced WAF functionality than we, than we provide, or something like that. Uh, the way you would do this is through attaching it to the transit gateway. And this, these next few slides are pretty important. Otherwise, a lot of slides won't make sense later. So I'm going to try to focus on the mechanics of this. So we have two methods to connect these network services to Transit Gateway. The first is this interface-based attachment. So from the Transit Gateway perspective, it looks like a normal VPC. What we're gonna do here is we're gonna assume we want to operate across three availability zones. In this model, we create sort of a private and public subnet. We put the instances in the public subnet. Public is just a word I'm using. It's not actually public in this case yet. Uh, and let's just say we want to do internet egress. So Uh, We'll need two different route tables for this because VPCs and our services VPC will need different policies. So in the the VPC route table, we're going to create a static route 00 to the transit gateway. All internet traffic, transit gateway. Okay. Which means we're going to need internet gateway on our services VPC now. So what we're going to do is we're going to attach those sort of private subnets to the transit gateway. And this is specific, specifically because each one of these can now have their own route table. And we will propagate that 0, 0 route over, or actually it's a static route. It's a static route to the outbound VPC here. So traffic comes with VPC, lands in that route table, says, go to our services VPC. Traffic's now gonna come out of those network interfaces there on the right. From there, we're gonna create these dedicated subnets that have a route in each one of those subnets that points to the network interface local to that availability zone. So traffic comes from Transit Gateway. It goes, I want to go to the internet. How do I get there? I'm going to look at my VPC route table. VPC route table says, I should go to the ENI of this instance. So as a static route, there's no HA there. From there, it's going to go to that instance. It's a, if it's a firewall, it's going to do firewall stuff. If it's a proxy, it's going to do proxy stuff. Whatever it does, the next thing it's gonna do is say, how do I get out to the internet? So uh, it's gonna take a look at its outbound route table, and we have a zero, zero route to the internet gateway. So whatever we put in this sort of public subnet is where the traffic goes after it goes through the instances. In this case, we want the traffic to go to the internet, but we could also, in theory, put this route back to the transit gateway. And then it would take a U-turn and go back to the transit gateway. So in this case, we're just going to the internet, so it's, it's going out that way. So the route tables are defining how this transit gateway sort of works. Okay? So the egress, the, the public subnet, or the second subnet on the right, defines the egress behavior. Uh, because we're going out to the Internet, we do up, need to apply source NAT, because if whatever our VPCs were, you know, this service VPC doesn't know where it came from. The, the private and public mappings of IP addresses don't carry over across VPCs. So we need to make sure that if we go out to the internet, that we have a local address. So we do a source NAT here. In theory, we could use a NAT gateway. So uh, we can show you that example. And so you also need the return route. So when traffic goes out to the internet, and then comes back, we undo the NAT, and it says, hey, I need to go to 10.something something. How do I get there? Well, that's we have a return route in that public subnet that says, go back to transit gateway. Goes back to transit gateway, and that route table, it says 10.1, is one of my attachments, and goes there. So we've created sort of this hairpin through another VPC, uh, all using route tables. Uh, We could replace these with NAT gateway. And actually, NAT gateway is a good candidate for this, because NAT gateway has high availability built in, because it's built on hyperplane. So uh, this, this is a pretty common pattern. This is probably the most common pattern I see with customers. As opposed to putting NAT gateways in every one of their VPCs, they can now put it in one VPC, and it's just less management. This also means you can pretty safely put the zero, 0 route in all of your VPC route tables, and then Transit Gateway can figure out from there. If it needs to go on-premises, it needs to go to the internet, it's all sort of figured out. So uh, what design decisions have we just made there when we did this? Uh, a couple things. Uh, one is uh, it's all native performance. There's no tunneling. So uh, there's no overhead there. We can do up to eighty five hundred MTU. Um, but we've also taken on a couple other things here. Uh, one is, we can only create one attachment per AZ. And that attachment is related to the subnet route table. So we can really only get like one route per availability zone. So it's not horizontally scalable. Plus, on the transit gateway, we try to keep traffic within the same availability zone if possible. So we may not get equal balancing across those three instances. If most of my instances are in AZA, most of the traffic can go to the instance in AZA so also not horizontally scalable. But the bigger thing, the thing I don't like, is that you've got a static route. You've got three static routes pointing to those network interfaces. If one of those firewalls has a bad day, well, you're just gonna black hole you know, some portion of your traffic until that gets fixed. Uh, there's a lot of solutions that use like Lambda or some other things to do monitoring. Um, that's okay, it works. People have been doing that for a long time. Uh, but it can create some you know challenges; those things aren't super reliable. You might find out it's a 10-second or 15-second failover or longer, um, just depending upon. So test that stuff out. There's no guarantees around how fast that failover happens. It, for me, I, it, for me, when I test it, it's usually pretty fast. Um, but it's do something you want to keep in mind on. So this is sort of like the, the higher native performance, but you take some HA sort of reliability on. So the next option I like more. I'll be honest about it. Um, so the transit gateway, uh, you have the same service as VPC, but this time we only need to create three subnets. So we put our instances where we want. Uh, we're gonna create the same two route tables. We're gonna put the same static route into our VPC. We're gonna put an internet gateway on the VPC. So same stuff so far. Uh, the difference is now we're gonna create a VPN from these instances into the transit gateway. So it looks like almost like an on-premises router. Uh, it's gonna use public addressing to do this as well. What the benefit is, is we can now advertise the 0-0 route from all these instances and then propagate that into the VPC route table. So now we're not limited to three instances anymore. We can do up to 50. So, you know, we get 1.25 gigs per tunnel, multiply that by 50, pretty healthy amount of bandwidth. The other good thing is, you know, we're using BGP to do this. So there's, you know, health checks, associated with BGP, there's also health checks on VPN. So we don't need to make any route table changes if something fails. Hopefully that's detected by those two routing protocols that we've been using for a long time. So you'll still have the return route to get back to the VPCs in the services route table. Uh, That will be advertised to the instances over BGP, so that's how they get the return route. And then we'll put the 00 route to the Internet gateway because that's the only thing it has access to. Uh, we still will apply the source NAT out to the internet. Same rules apply that we need a local IP address when we go out to the internet gateway. Uh, so what do these design notes look like? Well, uh, whatever instance that is needs to support VPN, needs to support NAT, needs to support, you know, a couple of different things. So there's a little bit higher bar there. Um, there is IPsec overhead. But what we've gained for this is, one, it's horizontally scalable. So we can do up to 50 of these instances if we so choose. Um, and the... the High availability is built into those protocols, right? So dead peer detection and the BGP Keepalives are gonna keep this thing moving and I don't have to worry about Lambda and other sort of static route sort of workarounds. So this is like the horizontally scalable with HA built in. And you, know, you don't have to completely soak all this in right now because most of the partners that we work with have turned these things into repeatable patterns, CloudFormation templates, those kinds of things. Um, but the core mechanics is, that's, that's what's revolving this stuff around. So, making sense? Follow me? Yeah, mostly? Cautious nods, nods here. <laughs> okay. Um, so now we're gonna take those two patterns and apply them to, to some actual use cases. So in this case, we're gonna do an outbound services use case. This would be for like NAT gateways, outbound proxies, these kinds of things. Like if you know your instances only talk to seven URLs and you wanna do some URL filtering, Great pattern. Uh, in this case, we do NAT gateways. Uh, we do the interface-based method. And there's a, and I just watched this movie, and I like it so much. Uh, there's a gremlin hiding here um, that a lot of people don't see. So what happens if 10.1 pings 10.2? Is that allowed? Well, it doesn't have a, it has a route to the to go to the internet, but not 10 route. So what happens is the packet goes to the NAT gateway. And because the NAT gateway has the return route to get to 10.2, it actually never goes to the internet. It goes to the NAT gateway, takes a U-turn, and comes back. And so we probably don't want that in a lot of cases, so we can add a black hole route to the VPC route table for these instances, that way we block that traffic as soon as it comes into the transit gateway. Okay? Uh, We can do something very similar with VPN. So same VPN attachment method. Uh, That comes in, goes out to the outbound VPC, goes to the internet, same gremlins apply, so you probably want to uh, put the black hole route. Uh, But in some models, maybe that's a firewall on the edge that you're using here, so maybe the firewall would just block that anyways. You may want to just handle that as part of your normal firewall policy. So this could, in theory, also be your east-west pattern if you want. So uh, what happens if you want to ingress things, if you want to centralize your ingress? So, uh, you know, you can do this for like WAF, or if you want to do third-party load balancing, um, you know, inspection in some cases. We also, uh, not pictured here, have a new feature called ingress routing that allows you to do this and put a route table on your VPC uh, on the internet gateway or the virtual private gateway, which is pretty neat doesn't really apply to Transit Gateway directly, so that's why it's not in here, but it's worth calling out. Go check it out. So in this case, we want to centralize our ingress. We put a load balancer, optionally, or if you use Route 53 or IP addresses, whatever we want to do. Comes into the central VPC. What we're gonna do is we're gonna source, apply source nat when it comes in, and we're gonna advertise the slash 32 routes that we're source natting into the Transit Gateway. And then we're gonna put that Transit Gateway route, so the VPCs, have the return route to get to, let's call it your WAF. So this means when traffic comes in through the WAF, it gets NATed, goes to the Transit Gateway, goes to the instance, and then the instance has a return route to know how to get back to that WAF, and then it goes back out to the internet from there. So you can centralize your, your, your internet ingress, you know, pretty cool use case there. Uh, there another pattern we see here is, is customers that want to put third-party devices or transit VPCs or firewalls in front of Transit Gateway. So, Maybe your networking team wants to have a familiar device in front of AWS you know, and treat it like their own data center. So the way this works is you might have your Edge VPC. Uh, let's just say you do a VPN integration method there. And then from on-premises, you create a VPN to those devices. And so that gets the traffic into AWS. You do your firewall or your SD-WAN or whatever you might want to do. And then from there, it goes into Transit Gateway to all your different VPCs. And VPC-to-VPC traffic is still handled through Transit Gateway. You could also do this over Direct Connect if you wanted to. So you can connect into those uh, instances privately if you wanted. So the use cases here are really about if you wanted to do things like encryption over Direct Connect. So you can have some routers from firewalls there if you wanted to do things like, if you're using uh, a non-dedicated, so like a hosted VIF uh, Direct Connect, where they only get one VIF. This allows you to, to create a private VIF to that edge VPC, and that edge VPC is then your ingress point into the rest of AWS. Uh, if you want to do SD-WAN, so if you have a uh, proprietary uh, encryption protocol or something you want to do, or you know SD-WAN protocol that you want to be everywhere, this allows you to bring that and front that into AWS without overloading that device with all the VPC to VPC traffic. Uh, if you have a transit VPC where you have a lot of spokes connected, you can take those spokes, put them on transit gateway, and then keep you know, sort of your router layer on the outside. So it's pretty useful to see a lot of customers doing this. Uh, or it's like firewall. If you don't, AWS is an untrusted data center. You want to put everything a firewall in between everything AWS. This is a really common pattern, too. Cool. I'm going to show you how to do a firewall in between all your VPCs, but I have to do a little bit of philosophy first. Um, I firmly believe that a lot of developers came to AWS because the DMZ inside your data center is so effective at getting nothing done. You know, I mean, we're talking about like three, four, five weeks to open up a firewall rule, and that's because, you know, you call them up, you go, hey, firewall guy, I need you to open up a port. No, sorry, I'm on this call, some developer thinks the network's the problem, and I'm on a sev two, because I'm trying to prove the firewall's not the problem again. Um, Sometimes it is, a lot of times it is. but either way, it's not a priority for them. It's just sitting in some service queue somewhere. Um, meanwhile, the developer's like, "Okay, well, I guess that task isn't getting done this sprint. Thanks, firewall people." So, uh, I mean, it's a bit of a rant, obviously. But you know, I think, before, and there's a timing case to put firewalls in AWS, uh, especially compliance, or if it helps you move faster. I, I think a lot of customers actually move faster once they bring firewalls into AWS. They see. The cost and the complexity and the value versus the risks that they're solving, and it gives them more data to say, like yes or no, we should or should not be doing this. And so that's probably faster than convincing the security Jedi Council that firewalls are a bad idea. You know, those people don't change their mind very often. You're not really ever ready for them. So uh, you know, you can bring them in, try them out. That's, but you should take a look at the alternatives. And please, if you can't automate this stuff, you know. Um, and make this a little more streamlined. You can take a look at alternatives, Guard is great. Um, there's other options like agents, that kind of thing. So before we move our entire DMZ stack to AWS, let's at least think about it, that's what I'm saying. All right, so here's how you move your entire DMZ stack to AWS. Uh, so what you could do here is you would still have maybe a 0.0, zero route or a 10 eight route in your VPCs. So if you want traffic from 10.1 to 10.2 to go into the firewall. So we create a 10 slash eight route, have that route point to the VPNs. So on the right here, those those instances would advertise 10 slash eight or 0.0 uh, to the transit gateway. And you would propagate that into the VPC route tables. So packets come from 10.1, hit a route table. It says, to get to 10.2, you have to go to the services VPC, goes there via the VPN. Firewall stuff happens. The return route points back to transit gateway. And then the route table for there points back up to the VPC. So it does the the same thing on the way back. But importantly, uh, it may not select the same VPN tunnel to go back. So you do need to apply source NAT here on the firewalls. If there's more than one path, then you have to apply source NAT on the the first path coming in. So what that means is apply source NAT, or what I've seen some customers do in sort of smaller environments, uh, they'll run like active standby firewalls. So they'll use like uh, BGP path prepending or other ways to make sure there's only one active firewall. So you lose the horizontal scalability, but you do, you know, you prevent from having to use NAT. Um, so that's, that's one option there. Uh, cool, so, and so you also need to advertise all these slash 32 routes that you're source NATing. That way you have a return route uh, to get back to the firewall for that if you're going to choose the source NAT stuff. Okay, uh, so like I said, hopefully these things aren't something you have to implement yourself. If you're using a lot of the commercial off-the-shelf options, we've been working with them over the last year to make sure that, that we have integrations and we have confirmation templates and we have reference architectures to implement these things. You know, each vendor takes their own sort of flair on it, so that some use interface, some use VPN, um, those kinds of things. So, Uh, These are the folks we've been working with, and a lot of these also worked with us on the Network Manager launch, so they have integrations in Network Manager, too. So, cool. Uh, One of the things I've also seen as part of this sort of services concept is a centralized private link. So I think we've got something like 41 private link services now for AWS, and rather than putting them, each one, in all 40, into hundreds of VPCs, customers would like to put one in a single VPC. You can do that. You can put that in the shared services VPC. You create a Route 53 private hosted zone and then share that out with your other VPCs. And there's a couple of different ways to do that. So I've put uh, net321 down there at the bottom for anyone that wants to go uh, really get deep on private link and you know doing secure connectivity. And then let's, go, let's talk about NAT for a second here. So NAT allows you to do something interesting. So how many you know how NAT gateway works? Okay. Hesitant hands, I like this. Um, so there's something NAC about NAT gateway a lot of people don't understand, and that I have to explain this before I show you the next thing. So uh, NAT gateway, we'll just say that we've got an instance 10.1.13.13. 13. There's a NAT gateway that has an EIP, elastic IP address, of 54.1.1.100. And then there's an internet gateway. So whenever you create the NAT gateway, it checks to make sure the internet gateway is there, because sort of that's how we expect customers to use it hint, we're not going to use it like that here. Um, so when the packet comes from the EC2 instance to the NAT gateway, uh, what address is going to be the new source address? So it was 10.113.13. After it goes to the NAT gateway, what's it going to be? It's going to be 10.1.13.100. Because uh, the NAT gateway is very simple. It's actually a very stupid thing. It just takes packets, <laughs> puts its own private source address on it, and sends it, sends it to wherever the route table tells it to send it. In this case, it tells it to send it to the internet gateway. Now, we have a different fleet that its sole responsibility is to turn private addresses into public addresses. So at this point, that fleet will see this packet and says, I know the public address for 10.1.13.100. It's 54.1.1.100. And that fleet exists at the internet edge. So if we go back and we delete the internet gateway, and let's say we send this to a virtual private gateway, When we send the packet there, because now NAT gateway does this NAT, looks up where to send it next, sends you the virtual private gateway, it's going to have a private address of 10.1.13.100. The EIP never gets applied. Okay. So now we can do some cool things. So uh, I was working with a customer that they didn't have enough IP addresses in their system. So they were giving developers like slash 28s, and developers were like, I want to run Kubernetes and Lambda, all this cool stuff, and I can't do that with 10 addresses. And you know, they are like, well, sorry, we're just poor on addresses, so just get creative. So one of the things you can do, so let's, let's just say for the purpose of this argument that 10.1 is our routable space. That, you know, it goes onto our on-premises network, we can use it. We can add a secondary CIDR range. So in this case, we can add 164, it's special space that we can add to any VPC. So we can add a se- second one, and we can give them something crazy, like a slash 16. And from here, we have a normal transit gateway doing normal transit gateway stuff. Doesn't really matter what that route table is, just ignore that, but we have a normal transit gateway. We can create a second transit gateway, create an attachment to it, and only put it in the non-routable subnets. From there, uh, we can create a 0-0 route that points to this other transit gateway. From there, we can connect and create a NAT gateway fleet It looks a lot like our egress example. But in this case, the egress route points back to Transit Gateway. So packets come into Transit Gateway, does a U-turn at the NAT instances, and so we've now turned our 100.64 addresses into the 10.100 space. And so then we can create a VPN into this new Transit Gateway, and anything that's in that sort of 100.64 playground space, if it needs to authenticate to on-premises or hit an API or hit a database on-prem, you now have that one-way access from your sort of play space uh, through NAT gateway into on-premises. So it's kind of cool, and uh, I've seen a lot of customers do that if if you don't have enough addresses. Uh, Yeah, cool, and you might want to filter that space because you'll probably get those through the other transit gateway, so you can just filter the 100.64 stuff when it gets on-prem. So I'd also like to announce that we have something else we can do, we can do multicast in the cloud. Man, you guys are really underwhelmed by that. Um, so yeah, we can do multicast in AWS now. So uh, the way this works, one isn't sends a packet and that turns into multiple packets. It's magic. Um, so if you have applications that have multicast dependencies, uh, financial services, media entertainment, those kinds of things. So we can now do multicast, or you want to run some application that has like maybe a, a clustering algorithm, something like that. Uh, so you can do that. You can, we do have basically uh, multicast domains on the Transit Gateway, so you can control who can and cannot subscribe to certain groups to make it more restrictive. So it's pretty neat. I think there's a blog post out on a, this morning, so check that out. So let's talk about multiple regions. You can connect multiple regions by using Direct Connect Gateway. We covered that already. So that's from on-premises into AWS. But then, how do you connect VPC to VPC? Another new announcement. So we can now peer transit gateways across regions. So you can use the peering. It's just a new, new attachment type. It's static only. Um, but you can't do it within the region, OK? So you know, if you had a multi-region connectivity, you could set something like this up, where you've got multiple transit gateways all peered with each other. So you can do a full mesh, use our backbone everywhere, we're gonna encrypt all that traffic, pretty great. And then you can combine this with the accelerated VPN. So now you can create accelerated VPN, comes into this global network, connect from anywhere to any part of your rest of your internal network. Um, One of the things you do wanna do, create a different ASN for your transit gateways. Otherwise, because today it's all static, but in the future, you know, we'd like to do dynamic routing. You'll need different ASNs for that. So when you create transit gateways, you know, make sure you give them unique ASNs. Like the Stano stuff, for example, does that for you automatically. But, and you, you have to delete the whole thing to create a new ASN. So, listen, please, that's the one thing you need to do. Okay. Uh, we also announced Global Traffic Manager, or uh, sorry, Global uh, Network Manager for Transit Gateway. So now you can view your transit gateways, the attachments, uh, where they're going on a map. And uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. You can check that out too. The the cost, uh, there's a a couple things you want to worry about and think about. Well, not worry, but think about. Uh, There's an attachment cost. I talked about the hyperplane stuff. Uh, So there's a, you know, I think in Virginia it's thirty-six dollars fifty cents per attachment. You know, Uh, and then there's also a two cent data processing charge for the sender. So that's that's what it costs. Uh, Some of the things I see, you know, sort of make design decisions is uh, VPC peering is one cent in, one cent out, so it's roughly equivalent, and then the ingress data into AWS. If you're doing a lot of data transfer, you may want to use VPN or Direct Connect and bypass Transit Gateway to reduce data transfer costs. And for those cases where you're doing the VPN integration into Transit Gateway, that's not a public thing. It it stays on our network, and it's also charged that inter-AZ rate even though you're public, using public addresses, it doesn't go over the internet. That's a common question. Uh, and if you're using a lot of peering cost, uh, VPC is probably a good idea to look at. So uh, let's wrap this whole thing up. So some of the, the, the takeaways are we have a lot of options. Uh, I, I hope that we've given you a pretty good way to make all this make sense for you. There's enough wiggle room to make it make sense for you, uh, and you can layer these things to get, to get additional security. Um, in terms of like personal advice, what I've seen with customers, I used to be in the hardware world, and I'm used to like network engineers building out seven-year roadmaps for their network because that's how long you have to keep the hardware for. You're not allowed to go back and ask for more hardware once it's out, so you have to predict how much bandwidth you're going to need in seven years, which is an impossible exercise, so everyone just quadruples their estimates. Um, I haven't seen a network architecture diagram that lasts AWS's innovation for more than like 18 months. And sometimes even 12 months. Like I was hoping I didn't have to make a whole bunch of new slides this year. I had to redo the whole stupid deck because we came out with features. I actually did this session on time last time, but then we released more features. So, um, you know, try to keep your architectures and your vision for like next 12 to 18 months. Don't build like three-year sort of architectures. I get like a lot of Visioware diagrams that like people think it will work, and I'm like, Do you actually have this running? They go, No, 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 no. Like, Okay, let's test this before you actually try this. So start simple if you can. If you have complex, hairy problems, try to sort of contain them. You're like, do I need ins- firewall inspection for everything or just that one app? Like we can use route tables to contain that. Uh, and more than anything else, just go out there and test it. Um, you can get a lot of this stuff off Marketplace. Uh, hope you guys all have a nice dinner tonight, but you can test a lot of this stuff on AWS for less than the cost of dinner. So you can go on Marketplace, do your, do your bake-offs, try it off, see if it works for you. Um, and that's the best way to find out if it's gonna work. So, uh, There's a training slide of some sort. And thank you. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Really appreciate it.